Excellent. All right, time to start. Now it's going to give me a hard time to start. Come on, YouTube. All right, we should theoretically be live, but as always, uh, I require some kind of external validation, some sort of uh, evidence that I exist. So once we've been observed, then we know uh, our wave front has collapsed and the show may begin. Uh, there we go. Someone told me that I exist, so I can only Excellent. assume that external it's validation. external validation. Yeah, it's a it's one of those quantum mechanics kind of things. Uh, hey, everyone. So my guest today is Jeff Notkin. He is the host of the Meteorite Men and the new president of the National Space Society. There, get off my back. I just explained who my guest is. Now I can shift into the more slower kind of introductory approach. Jeff, how's it going, man? It's going extremely well, Fraser. It's very nice to hear your voice in real time. <laughs> yeah. Again, thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Glad to have you. Uh, we met for the first time in Australia uh, almost a year ago. It was uh, July 2018. Uh, we were at a great festival, astronomy festival in Australia, both giving talks. Uh, it was, and it was the first time we met and it was it just, was. and it was, it was love at first sight. We had a great time, a great chat across a range of subjects. And my hope is that we can just capture just like a little bit of that magic today. Oh, so, I'm sure we can. Thanks. Yeah. That's a, was a lovely intro. And of course, <laughs> you and I had been, had been social media friends for yes. years yeah. and supporters of each other's work, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's one thing to like see a person's tweet. And it's another thing to actually hang out in public and be able to interact face to face. And it, it's it, we never get a chance to do this, right? Like as people who all live scattered across the planet, we never get a chance to actually hang out in person and and interact. And it's it's my great sadness because I live in this beautiful paradise, Vancouver Island. Uh, it's such a pain to go anywhere off this place uh, and yet when i do i get a chance to go to conferences and stuff and i have such a good time hanging out with people so i i haven't solved this some kind of teleportation system holograms it needs to be cracked i think surely that's on the way i mean have you heard of the show star trek yeah basically use those things all the time yeah so uh so so who are you what do you do i i'm i'm a I'm a bit of an oddball, really, Fraser. I think you already know that. We hang out in Australia. As, as you said, we met in Australia. We met in a strange, beautiful outdoor dining area <laughs> at, a, at a very magnificent resort on the Australia coast where we were both speakers at a marvelous astronomy event hosted by our friend Dylan. I am, I am a lifelong science and arts devotee. I, I am equally fascinated by the sciences and the arts, as you know, and as some of your viewers may remember, for three years, I hosted a very high energy action adventure science show called Meteorite Men. It was originally made for Science Channel, but went on to air on Discovery and networks all over the world, tens of millions of viewers. And meteorites have been my passion since I was a kid. So the opportunity to take my interest my fascination not just for the meteorites themselves but for the adventure of finding them to a global audience was was a, was a marvelous thing for me and coupled with my interest in meteorites and here's the big irony of my life is a fascination with spaceflight so on the one hand i've got this this enduring love for the cast off debris of the universe, well, really the solar system, but it sounds better to say the universe, the cast off debris of the universe today that lands on our planet Earth. And on the other hand, I'm fascinated by the processes of getting humans and robots off the surface of our planet up into space. So what goes up and what comes down, both lifelong passions for me. And how lucky am I to now be working in both fields at the same time? So after, after many years of working with meteorites, as first as someone who traveled the world looking for them, and then as a science writer, I wrote 
I've written articles in several books about meteorites. And then there is a television show and many other television shows. I also did a series called STEM Journals, which was a multidisciplinary science show. And I've guested on many, many science shows from Discovery, BBC, PBS, PBS and, and all that sort of thing. And I'm chief executive officer of Aerolite Meteorites, which is a commercial meteorite company or an international company. Our headquarters is in Tucson, Arizona, which is where we are broadcasting from today. And we also have a European office. And in addition to commercial work, so we, we buy, sell, trade, authenticate meteorites, provide specimens to collectors and universities all over the world. We're very passionate about outreach. To me, it's never been primarily a commercial enterprise. Running a, a successful business allows you to have some cash flow, which allows you to do other things. And I choose to do educational, fun, exciting, and informative science and arts-based things. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I mean, I think the, the part where people know about you the best is just this, this worldwide hunt for meteorites, which, I mean, is a... It's such a wonderful hobby because it's like half adventure, half science, half mystery, all mystery. Um, where that's you three are, halves, I know, I know, but I know, it is one hundred and fifty percent. That's exactly that's all I'm thing. saying. Yeah, yeah, half, <laughs> half adventure, half science, all fun. Um, and and the fact that you are sort of chasing these legends of meteorite strikes that have happened around the world and then actually getting into various people's backyards with or without their permission to dig them up and um and sort of find these just treasures from space is great and and for anyone who actually has a a piece of metal from space it is like one of the top things that i recommend so you sell well, I have, have one right here. Yeah. Is that a stone one or a metal one? Very well recognized from the video feed, Frazier. Yes, I picked this one because I thought it was it was particularly relevant to, to space exploration and space flight. Yeah. So this is a stone meteorite. This is a, a, a half individual or maybe two thirds of a stone. So this face has, has been cut off. Oh, what have you got there? There's an iron. Yeah. Oh, marvelous. Yeah, it's a, it's a little, it's getting a little rusty. I need to recode it, I think. So. Yes, I'd be happy to advise you on that. Perfect. We've got some, uh, we've got some good techniques. All right. Well, then I can't wait to find out. But it's so, so amazing just to have like a chunk of space metal, or in your case, space rock. So what's the story on this one? This is, uh, uh, we call it a Northwest Africa XXX. It is a stone meteorite, a chondrite, the most abundant type of meteorite that was found in the hot, dry deserts of Northwest Africa. And it has been cut along this face to show its interior. And chondrites take their name from chondrules, the tiny glassy spheres that are believed to have formed at the very beginning of the solar nebula. So prior to any of the formation of the rocky bodies in our solar system. And this type of meteorite, the material of which it's made, these chondrules, has remained largely unchanged since the formation of the solar system in many cases. And so the study of meteorites gives us perhaps the best hands-on opportunity to explore and understand the makeup of other bodies in space. And that's where the meteorite spaceflight overlap really began to shine for me because I was invited by Rick Tumlinson to join the advisory board of Deep Space Industries many years ago. Because if we're going to mine asteroids, we want to know what the asteroids are made of. And most meteorites come from asteroids. So there's a pretty good Sherlock Holmes cause and effect chain that you can follow back there. If we study meteorites and are able to determine what type of asteroids they come from and where those asteroids might be, we're quite far along the theoretical path to mining usable materials from those asteroids. Yeah. But my favorite bit's what you said about the 150% fun and adventure. Yeah, the 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 digging around uh, in people's backyards, seeing if you can find the the asteroid strike. Now, even though most of them are those those rocky ones, the ones that you find tend to be these metal ones because they they're magnetic, which are weird. Will adhere to a magnet? Yes, they don't actually have magnetic properties, right. but yeah. the vast majority of meteorites contain a significant amount of iron. And actually, depending on the light, this this chondrite, this stone meteorite, even though it's described as a stone, still has about 20% iron in it. And you might see it reflecting in the, in the light there. So 
we can use some very sensitive metal detectors under certain circumstances to locate this type of meteorite. But if we're out in the field using technical equipment to find buried meteorites, we're more often than not looking for stone, for iron, sorry, or stony irons. So an iron meteorite similar to the one that you just held up, typically about 93% iron, and the rest is, is nickel and trace elements. So if that's buried at a reasonable depth and you go over it with a metal detector, you're definitely going to know about it. Yeah. And the stony irons, the palisites and mesosiderites are about 50% nickel iron. So also can provide a, a very powerful target to a metal detector. Interestingly enough, though, statistically, the vast majority of meteorites that fall on Earth are stones, similar to the one I was just holding up. That's the most abundant right. material that seems to be floating around and, and has the potential to cross paths with Earth and, and crash into us. So when we go and we investigate recently fallen meteorites, which you might say are the progeny or the what's left behind from a fireball, we are usually expecting to find stone meteorites and usually on the surface. So contrary to what you might see in sci-fi movies and some blockbuster films, most meteorites, I'm afraid, as you well know, Fraser, are not molten and burning hot when they hit the, hit the ground. They, they're actually slowed down through atmospheric breaking and, and various physical processes. So typical impact speed would, would hit the earth maybe two or 300 miles an hour. So you still don't want to get hit in the head by one. Right, right. Uh, unless you're a robot. Yeah. And even then, that uh, might damage Still not good. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask you literally the easiest question of this oh, entire interview. This is, gonna be, this is going to be the softball. What is your name? Uh, no, no. Um, uh, Eric wants to know, uh, where can I buy a meteorite? Uh, so that it isn't a scam. Oh, here we go. Eric asks, where does one purchase a meteorite? I suspect the ones on eBay, et cetera, are probably fake. Where is a purveyor of meteorites that someone could trust? Thank you for your question, Eric. There are a number of very reputable meteorite sellers in the world. And there's a, there's a wide selection on eBay, but the, the risks are, the risks associated with buying something on eBay would be the same for, for any other collectible. So my company, Aerolite Meteorites, it's aerolite, A-E-R-O-L-I-T-E.org, is a long-established meteorite vendor. I've been in the business myself for 25 years. And another really wonderful company is meteoritesforsale.com. They're based in California. And it's important... If you are considering purchasing a meteorite, that you go to a company that's very reputable, that is going to give you a no-nonsense guarantee, both of authenticity and return policy in, in case you decide that you don't like it for any reason, yeah. which really doesn't happen. I don't think my, <laughs> yeah. my customers typically don't call and say, well, I got this fantastic meteorite, but I don't like it. That's just not something that we, what usually happens is people go, oh, I love this meteorite so much. I want another one or a bigger yeah. one now. Well, so I actually will admit, I love the ones on eBay and you, it, it's definitely a bit of a crapshoot, but I tend to look for people who have a, a pretty good reputation. They've been doing this a long time and I will buy collections of the smaller chunks mm. and then when i go to conferences or when i visit people i will bring meteorites and then give them meteorites and go here you go Wonderful. it's a piece of space metal it i generally guarantee a superpower uh, although a fairly mild superpower you know like nothing like not like flight or anything but like every time you go for a motorbike ride it's probably going to be sunny or something like that right indeed uh, and Actually, Fraser, could I add another bit of information to to Eric's the answer to Eric's question, please? Which is, I don't I don't want to just promote my company. There there are a number of other vendors who are, who are wonderful. There is an organization called the International Meteorite Collectors Association (IMCA), and this is a global organization of vendors and collectors, and they have very high standards required. Of, of, you, of you ethically and in a business sense to be a member. So a good way to gauge right. the, the reliability of a vendor is to see if he or she has the IMCA badge on their, their website or their eBay page. And, and there, there are many good eBay sellers out there. I'm not, I'm not knocking yep. eBay. But if you're going to shop on eBay, look for the IMCA badge, or as Fraser says, look for, look for someone who has a long track record. And there's a wonderful gentleman, Mike Miller, who is a very active 
meteorite hunter for many years and, and his eBay handle is meteorite finder. And he's a, he's a, one of those guys like me who, who goes out in the field and, and does the finding. Uh, and, so and then then we have the hard part about oh I don't know if we're going to be able to sell any of these after after the enormous adventure of finding them right that's the problem right <laughs> it's trying to sell something that you like literally bled over to acquire but it, I guess that's this uh, is a, part this of the is game. a very accurate assessment and I must say Fraser that a lot of the pieces that I have found over the years have remained in the Aerolite meteorites reference collection or have been donated or have gone into museums and I actually have not sold that many of the ones that i found you right. it's it's like it would be like selling almost a, a an art creation or a, i don't know if i yeah. should say selling a child that yeah. may be not right so when when someone enough, but... from argentina brings you a box full of campos del cielos no problem you're happy to to uh make some of those available on your on your website but when you literally had to go and and chase a, a rumor from 1922 into the uh, into the backyard of someone, uh, yeah. Then then you've got some skin in the game. Most definitely. Yeah. And in some cases, we've spent so long on an expedition that by the time we get to the end of it, even if we make a very significant find, it still may not necessarily pay for the cost of the exhibition uh, expedition. Yeah. Even in hard costs, that's not factoring in the time of the several people usually who would have gone. So. My co-host on Meteorite Men, Steve Arnold, who's been my great friend for over 20 years, is fond of saying that I'm actually his best customer. And the reason for this is <laughs> Steve and I typically agree to co-own the things that we find. And Steve's a, an excellent businessman and has been in the business right. for many years. And then you have to buy him out. Uh, yeah, and Steve's also dad with with children and other careers. That's and awesome. So sometimes we get to the end of this harrowing three-week expedition and we found a couple of really good pieces and Steve goes, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, you know, I'll cut mine up and put them on eBay. And I'll go, no, no, actually, I'll just buy your half. Right. And, and keep it. So it's uh, usually a jovial and friendly arrangement. But uh, sadly, I think he may be accurate in, in that assessment of me being his best customer. Uh, Don't Jim asks, I just bought a book on micrometeorites. What can you tell me about them? Have you gotten into the hobby of micrometeorites yet? I have the same book. Actually, it's. I was looking for it. It's kicking around. I'm sure I'll, I will dig it up at some point. But And, uh, and could I talk. ask the name of the book that you... Let me, that let you me find it. Please. Yeah, they sent me Thank a review you. copy. Wonderful. Because there are, there's, there are a couple of different books on micrometeorites. And I know there's one that's come out recently that I have not seen yet, but from photographs looks fascinating. So micrometeorites as best we can tell, land all the time over the entire surface of the Earth. Oceans, jungles, ice caps. And they're tiny, really tiny, hence the name. It's probably not an intellectual leap. So smaller than you would see with the naked eye. And if you're interested in the science behind this fascinating aspect of extraterrestrial material, I highly recommend a marvelous book called Hunting for Stars, by Michelle Moret, M-A-U-R-E-T-T-E, a French author and academic who studied micrometeorites, micrometeorites for many years. And I think it's out of print, but, but quite easy to find. So, so Michelle examines all the different strategies that you could use. If you accept the theory that micrometeorites fall all the time all over the surface of the earth, how are we gonna find them? Well, one of the popular methods is to scoop out carefully all of the material inside your rain gutters. Right. We don't actually have rain gutters in Tucson. We just don't have any rain here. But if you lived in a, in a place with a more reasonable climate, you probably have them. The theory is this. It's not that they fall into the gutter. It's that the roof of your house is a fairly large target in the scheme of things. And everything that falls onto your roof would probably over time be washed down into the gutter. And then if you carefully scrape out that material and then go through it with a very powerful magnet, you may recover some micrometeorites. And the best way to examine them is through a powerful microscope. So it sounds good so far, right? Here's the, here's the bit where the disillusion comes in. You will probably almost certainly find loads of tiny little things in your gutter that will stick to your magnet. And some of them will be bits of your gutter and some of them will be other strange, unexplainable bits of metal that have fallen on your roof, which strangely enough, really does happen. 
And mixed in there, hopefully, probably will be some micrometeorites. And examining them under a really powerful microscope is the best way to look at them. And you will notice, if you find any, no. that some of them are oriented. They have a rounded front, like a little shield, like a little tiny heat shield, heat right. shield on a miniature Apollo capsule. And there are, if you were to do an online search for photographs of micrometeorites, you'll see some, some pretty extraordinary images. And they really are out there. It's an exercise in patience, but it is a yeah. way in which almost anyone could hunt for meteorites. You don't necessarily have to get five vehicles and go across the Australian outback wearing flying helmets. Put a sheet out like for, six, for six weeks in the, during the summertime. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I've, uh, I've been wanting to do this, but it's just like, a, like I need another hobby. Um, oh, so, yes. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's very interesting, though, if you think about, Fraser, your interest in astrophotography and how you're photographing the most massive things as far away as could be. And then if you were to photograph micrometeorites as well, you're photographing the most minute things, but they've also traveled a great distance. Yeah. So the, the book that, that you're mentioning, and I apologize, and in fact, I'm, I'm planning to have the writer as a guest, but um, he's got pictures of every false positive as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, and so you can see what a piece of coal dust looks like and a piece of of pollution and glass particles. And he's seen everything and identified everything and, and essentially has gotten the scientific community to agree that what remains are definitely from space. Ah, so, excellent. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to see that. Do you remember the author's name offhand? I, I, will, I will send you a copy. I'll oh. send you the info after Please. I Thank you. dig it up. And yeah, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll make a connection for you to be able to, to talk with them. Let's move into space exploration because, I mean, all this meteorite oh. stuff is fine. But so you... Um, you know, you expressed that, you you know, you spent some time with Rick Tomlinson with his Deep Space Industries. Of course, the other one is uh, Planetary. What's the name on Planetary? Planetary Resources. Planetary Resources. Yeah. And, you know, there is like an there was almost a bit of a, a land rush, a little bit of a boom there in space based mining companies. And then I think that sort of stalled out a little bit because it turns out space is difficult. Where are we? in our quest to harvest resources from uh, the solar system directly? I love that question. We're well on our way. It's yeah, definitely going to already happen. there. And well, we we're are starting with the Earth. Yes. Yeah. Well, and if you if you think about the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is is based here in Tucson, and the the principal investigator of OSIRIS-REx, Dante Loretta, is a, is a wonderful friend and colleague of ours. This is a mission a robot spaceship that's going to asteroid Bennu, well, is at asteroid Bennu, is now figuring out where is the best place to collect material from. And it's gonna scoop some of that off the surface and it's gonna bring it back to Earth and we're gonna be able to study it. So that is asteroid mining on, on a modest scale, although not modest in terms of achievement, to build a robot that could go all the way out there, find the asteroid, survey it, extract material and bring it home is a Herculean scientific achievement. It, it's really extraordinary. So that in a way, I mean, you could argue it almost diminishes the value of meteorites. Not really, but-, but <laughs> Go get so, them from space. Well, this one's been melted by the yeah. atmosphere yeah. on the way in, so it's special. Yeah. But you could look at OSIRIS-REx as, as the first real solid step towards asteroid mining. And I, it's I, not. Go ahead. Please. I was going to say. Well, I mean, I think. I mean, this is sort of my my current obsession. Is like everyone is so excited about how SpaceX is demonstrating the power of reusable rockets, and that we're at this time suddenly where rocketry is becoming so inexpensive that you can launch satellites into space, and they're going to build a global gps system and a global internet satellite so we can all have internet in the middle of nowhere which is wonderful i want that yes please but but in fact the reality is that i think this is just a blip that 20 years from now 30 years from now we won't be launching very many rockets anymore we won't need to because all of the raw material that we require for our space-based infrastructure is out there in space and the reality is that it's ridiculous to launch anything from this gravity well out into space. You know, a kilogram of metal here on Earth is going to cost you a dollar, 
while a kilogram of metal in orbit is going to cost you $2,000. A kilogram of metal on the surface of the moon is going to cost you $100,000. So there is an enormous economy of scale if you can figure out how to make the spacecraft go and extract the resources and be able to build these structures. And also, you can build things in space which are far more... Um, appropriate for space because you know with the James Webb Space Telescope it's got to be built on land it's got to be fold up it's got to handle the rocket launch it's going to be shaken around and it's going to get up into space and it's got to unfold and everything's got to go right when you could just build something in space from day one that's never had to exist in the earth atmosphere under the earth gravity and have a better uh, system so I actually think that you know obviously deep space industries planetary resources, whoever, whoever cracks this, that it is it is going to leapfrog the entire need for rockets. The only thing we're going to need rockets for is to launch the meat to go <laughs> up into space to, you know, to be the space tourist. But apart from that, we're not going to need any of that. I was just going to say the same thing. Won't it be fantastic when we get to the point where the only things that we're really launching into orbit are the people? Yeah that everything else is being manufactured there. So you and I are so much on the same page with this. You've, you've hit on some of my on some of my favorite topics and some of the most important topics for long-term spaceflight exploration and settlement. When we get to the point where we don't have to take what we need with us, the, the entire circumstances of construction and settlement change. And this is where asteroids become so important. And that is why the study of meteorites is so important in this story. We know from studying meteorites, from, from that's actually why I picked this one, because the surface of many or most asteroids will be made of this type of material, chondritic material. There, there are a lot of, there's a lot of variety out there, not all of them, but this is what we expect many to look like. And what have we got in here? Well, iron and nickel to start, all sorts of silicate materials, and if we look at some different types of meteorites, carbonaceous chondrites, very ancient meteorites that have been less altered over time, we find that some of them contain water, carbon, salt, amino acids, other trace elements and metals. All of these things can be used in space and we'll need them. One of the most challenging things that I, I think the average person would not really register is that every bit of water and every bit of oxygen that our astronauts on the International Space Station have to consume, all the, all the materials originally have to be taken up there in a rocket, yeah. spacesuits, food, spare parts, everything, everything that you need. So when we get to the point where we can make some of those things, the heavy things, as, as you said, the metals, the structures in space, extract them from asteroids and perhaps use 3D printing or other contemporary technologies to make the parts that we need, everything changes. And this is actually my favorite bit of the whole story because I'm a huge fan of Babylon 5 mm -hmm. and I just love the Earth Force Alliance destroyers and they're not at all streamlined. They've got all these extra bits and pieces on the superstructure and these giant cannons and everything pointing out. When we start building ships in space, we can do that. They won't ever go into the atmosphere. They will always stay in a vacuum, so they don't have to be streamlined. And that's exactly what you said, Fraser, when you said we won't have to build things here yeah. for space. We can build things in space to be used in a practical way there. Uh, when I was um, I was doing some work with the X Prize a couple of years ago, and so we were building this platform so everybody could make their own X Prize it's called Hero X. You can still go there. And my idea was I wanted to do a challenge every year, or whatever, which was a self-replicating robot challenge. So whoever could make a robot make the most of itself in as automated a fashion as possible would win this year's challenge i mean it kind of never got i never got really got it off the ground to say but but i still think that's the future right if we can get to this place where you send one robot and it goes to an asteroid builds more copies of itself harvests the resources that it needs sh shuttles them back to where we need them then like what does expense even mean anymore because you've sent all your cost was one robot and then mm -hmm. everything just starts you know as long as you're patient it's like planting one seed 
and then you get a forest. So I think that is, it really feels to me like that is a future. There's just a million, obviously, um, technical challenges to, to get there. The, the, and, but there are some actually quite incredible developments that are happening, like things like um, Made in Space. They have this great um, 3D printer on the International Space Station. They could build wrenches and little doodads and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But they're building this Arconaut, which is their little uh, spacecraft, and it will... It takes sort of vats of raw material, and then it will extrude girders like a spider. And then it will sort of, you know, like pull them out of its mouth and then pull out the girder, like, you know, spin the girder and then spin a little bolt and then spin a nut and then attach it together with its three arms and then extrude another girder, right? And so you can see, again, as we start to learn these lessons – what it means to live in space, to build things in space, facilities, infrastructure, that kind of thing is, is all, is all changing. So how far away do you think this stuff is now that you've been on the, the inside track on some of these organizations, how far until space mining becomes a thing? It's happening so quickly. I, I feel that we, we almost have the technology we almost have all of the pieces now. And of course, the distances are still quite significant in getting to the asteroids. We probably, in most cases or all cases probably, would not be going to the asteroid belt anytime soon because average distance from here to the asteroid belt, as you know, is about 250 million miles or more. So asteroids that are in an erratic orbit near Earth, asteroids that come closer to us become much more attractive targets because they're, they're so much closer. But... I mean, definitely in our lifetimes, in in not very many years, yeah. I think. And I have to just go back and say OSIRIS-REx, again, the, we've just done the first step. The robot's there at Bennu now, at Asteroid Bennu now, talking to headquarters here in Tucson. It's an amazing achievement. Not so, to mention Hayabusa. I, exactly. two of them, right? Yes. So I just, I have a special affinity for OSIRIS-REx because I went to visit it when it was being built in Denver and, and I did an episode of STEM journals about it, but it's certainly, it's not, it's not the only mission, but it's one I'm very close to. So that shows that we can do it. That shows that we can send a robot to an asteroid and collect material. And from there, it's a very small jump, I think, to extracting material using micro foundries as has been proposed by Deep Space Industries and 3D printing and other technologies to, to build the parts and then if you, if you take that one step further and talk about the self-replicating robots that you discussed, you could have an army of these guys out there building stuff for yeah. us. Yeah, harvesting the water, making oxygen, building rocket fuel, really whatever you want. Yes, uh, and you, just, you, you touched on something else that's extremely important. Not just the hardware, but the water and the oxygen that we could use on the International Space Station now or in the very near future, when these when these raw materials, when we're processing them from, from asteroids or from the moon and Mars. But then the progeny of the ISS, the next generation of permanent space structures and settlements that are going to come, if we can get the raw materials, the water, the oxygen that we need from nearby, it it makes them it it makes it much more reasonable and believable that they could continue in perpetuity as as self-sufficient. So, groups. so why are the companies who are trying to do this having such a hard time? It's a, it's, it's such a massive challenge. It's the, the cost, the hardware, the risk. And when you consider that until quite recently, nearly all of the significant accomplishments in spaceflight were the work of major governments. So, NASA through the United States government, the Russian space program, and the other, the other big achievements that have happened. But if, I mean, let's go back to the Cold War, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, America versus Russia. This is a, this is a monumental undertaking. This is almost unlimited resources being thrown at this space race of who's gonna be the first to get to the moon. And it's completely different now where we have we have entrepreneurs and we have some very successful business people who in some cases, as, as you well know, are putting their own fortunes into this. And I find it very inspiring because if you go back and look at some of the great inventors and the great leaps forward that have been made in technology in our history, 
the Wright brothers being a fantastic example, they were entrepreneurs. They were doing it themselves. So the phenomenal cost and the new technologies that have to be invented in order to make particular things happen are enormous challenges, of course. But look at the strides that have been made in the past few years. The, the Virgin Galactic flights, the, the reusable SpaceX rockets, Worldview here in Tucson doing its test launches, the, which leads on to another really interesting topic, which is space tourism, which is another thing that is so close to happening. And I have a, I have a very close friend, Jim Clash, who is a, a celebrated adventure writer who was a very early person to sign up for Virgin Galactic years and years ago, when I think some of us probably looked at him and thought, gosh, you really are very optimistic <laughs> or a bit crazy. And, and, and now look at the successful flights that they just had so recently. Like maybe this year, maybe he'll get a chance to fly this year, next year, maybe. Soon, I soon. think, very, yeah. very, very, very soon. And it's so exciting for someone like myself who has vigorously observed an advocate, ad, uh, visit, uh, vigorously observed spaceflight for my entire life. I was born in 1961, just a very little, very short period of time before Yuri Gagarin made the first spaceflight, became the first human to leave Earth. So I'm the same age as man's spaceflight, human spaceflight. Right. And there was that long, exciting period in the 60s and 70s with Mercury and Gemini and Apollo and Skylab. And then, of course, things changed. And we were, we were doing much lower Earth orbit operations with the space shuttle and the build going towards the ISS. But now we're at the exploration stage again. And yeah. it's not just one or two entities. Right. It's not just Russia and the states competing against each other. It's countries and companies. And you know when the private sector gets involved in something, it's going to have to pay or it's going to stop. There is not unlimited funding for these things. Yeah, I mean, I could spend the rest of this episode rattling off all of the companies that are participating in this new space race. And some won't survive. Some, you know, but when you've got, you know, China, you've got Russia, you've got the US from a country standpoint, you've got India, you've got the plans from folks in the Middle East, you've got and then you've got collaborations between, say, the U.S. and New Zealand, and there's a new launch facility that's going to be here in Canada. Um, and then you've got all these companies, not just SpaceX. Blue Origin is going to be hot on their on their heels, plus Vector Space and a lot of really interesting companies that most people probably haven't even heard of. And then other ideas as well, like Strata Launch and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so we're Isn't in this, that something. Yeah. So and we're don't, in this and don't forget the European Space Agency, which is a consortium of many countries right. working together. And this is one of the this is one of the really great hopes in spaceflight. Wouldn't wouldn't it be marvelous if if getting out there and exploring and harvesting the riches of space actually brought us together? more and the European Space Agency, Agency is a marvelous example yeah. of that 16 or 17 countries working together on, on projects of, of tremendous scope. And where we were last year in Australia, there's a, there's a vigorous and growing Australian independent yeah. space flight movement. They just got a space, uh, yeah, they got a space agency. And lots of nice, dry, flat, open spaces in Australia for launching rockets, just FYI. Yeah. Um, Hello, Australians. So let's talk about your, your new gig. Your new job. Well, I have the most exciting job on Earth, I think, just about. I, I have been uh, involved with the National Space Society for many years. And a little background, the NSS was founded in 1974 by Werner von Braun, the great rocket scientist who built the Apollo rockets. And in the 80s, it merged with the L5 Space Society. And we are now a global force. This is an international organization with many thousands of active members and an enormous number of affiliate members. We have about 50 chapters around the world. And the thing that really drew me to the NSS is it's not just a club for space enthusiasts. This is a serious organization that is promoting the concept of humanity as a spacefaring civilization for all time. And our, our leadership is made up of engineers and former astronauts, scientists, many NASA employees, past and present, 
and employees of many other major space-related companies. So we have a leadership made up of very experienced people who understand the workings of the spaceflight world. And we have actively lobbied for spaceflight-friendly legislation in the States and provided a learning platform. We have an enormous educational division that helps bring students from overseas to space-related functions here in the States. And every year we host the International Space Development Conference, which rotates from city to city. This year, it'll be in Arlington, Virginia from June 6 through 9. And this is a very large, fascinating, brilliant, and engaging meeting of spaceflight professionals and enthusiasts, young and old. And we have hundreds of students come from overseas for this, hundreds of future spaceflight professionals. And this year is gonna be really something special. We have NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine as one of our keynote speakers. And uh, we have Laurie Garver and we have astronauts and engineers, uh, extraordinary lineup of, of speakers. As, as extraordinary lineup of speakers as you could get in yeah. spaceflight, I think, just about. I mean, Al Warden from Apollo 15 is coming to address the student the student group one morning, boy, are they in for a treat. <laughs> That's amazing. And so, so we, and so really what? So the goal is to get students enthusiastic and excited and involved in space exploration early on? It's part of it, but we're, we're by no means just a student organization, although the educational wing is, is a big part of the NSS. But the 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 more active space flight professionals in leadership are, are engaged in in advising and helping with sensible long-term space flight policies and encouraging industry and innovation as well as learning. So this, the student wing of the NSS is probably best represented at ISDC, although we are also involved with the space settlement design contest and competition they're, they're two separate ones that encourage students from all over the world to solve real problems. How would we build habitats using this form of technology? And that's something that I'll be involved with in July. I'm very honored to have been invited to go to Kennedy Space Center by Anita Gale, who's the secretary of the National Space Society, to be one of the judges of the International Space Settlement Design Competition, where I will be meeting students who are addressing these challenges, these hardware challenges. How do we how do we build a safe habitat that settlers, astronauts can live in? Um, Molo113 uh, one, 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 asks, uh, how do you feel about the return to the moon? I feel great about it. <laughs> Just please. <laughs> I, I'm sorry it's taken so long, but we... There, there Is it going to happen, of, though, this time? Uh, Oh, oh yes. Oh, uh, why are there questions about whether or not it happened last time? No, no but let's but, not even get into that. No, 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 not that. No, I'm saying like, like you know, we were going to go back to the moon back in like the uh, early 2000s, and oh, then I'm we're so going to go to Mars, and then we're going to go to an asteroid, and then we're going to go to Mars again, and now we're going to go to the moon, and we're going to do it in in uh, four, five years, and 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 like, there's some challenges here. So. Oh, yes, definitely. But it's the first time in a significant number of years that that a, a leading American politician, in, in this case, our vice president, has has really thrown down the challenge and said, OK, we're going we're going to be there in, in X number of years. And you can't help but think back to President Kennedy in the 1960s, early 1960s, giving us the challenge of getting to the moon before the decade was out. So I'm very encouraged to see strong support from our government and other governments for long-term space exploration. It's critical, it's not a hobby, it's not a fun thing that we should maybe be doing. Mm -hmm. It's critical for our survival and it's very important for our progression technologically and it also offers many returns. So that's a direction that has been presented by the United States government, which is wonderful, I'm all for it. There are many other opportunities, there, there asteroid mining that we've already discovered, there are flights to Mars, there are all sorts of opportunities to build things in 
in low orbit space and higher orbit space, all the, the multitude of opportunities are very different from what we were presented with in the 1960s and 1970s when most of American space-related resources were going in one direction. And now we see a multitude of projects worldwide, many different governments, many different entrepreneurs. So yes, I'm all in favor of going back to the moon and I really look forward to seeing some more moon rocks come back. <laughs> well, I think f from my perspective, there is a lot of hidden um, problems that, that people tasked with this job are waiting to uncover are in political problems in trying to get various support from different uh parts of the united states that have been that have been very used to jobs coming to their regions that there are hardware uh manufacturers that have been working on their projects in a certain kind of cost plus accounting system that there are safety features that still need to be figured out. And as long as the safety is there, I think this will be an opportunity to shake out what's wrong, what's missing, and get a much better sense of what it will actually take. And and then at some point, though, someone's going to say, it's going to cost more money. And that's when I think the rubber's really going to hit the road, right? Will they be able to deliver on the money? I... I, whenever the discussion of long-term spaceflight and exploration comes around, it, it, at some point it usually gets to the cost, and understandably, because it, it is an, it is, the price tag is really high. It seems when someone just says, well, it cost X billion dollars to develop this rocket and to go to the moon and it cost all of this, but you know that the returns are enormous. The, the new technologies that have been developed, the the fact that we began to really understand what the greenhouse effect is and what global warming is through studying Venus, we would not be as far along in our concerns about the long-term environmental safety of Earth were it not for space exploration. And here's a number that will knock your socks off. About $350 billion a year generated by space-related industry and tech. And that's just where it is now. And then if you look really long-term and we start getting into some intriguing areas like space solar power, where we could actually be generating energy in space and returning it to earth and long-term possibly even moving dangerous, toxic, heavy industry off earth into orbit or onto other astral bodies, you're looking at massive long-term benefits for humanity. But the, the immediate returns are new technology, jobs, financial return, enormous financial return from space investment. And the, the less tangible, the less measurable, the, the pride and the amazement that we have, that we were able to send humans off our little rocky body out there and bring them back for the betterment of ourselves, not just in a financial way, but in in a more spiritual way, in the sense that we have gone on the great adventure and returned safely, and now let's prepare another great adventure. It's part of who we are. We're never gonna be content to just sit here and look up at the sky. You're a devoted astronomer. You know what that <laughs> yeah. feels like. I, I think that all of those reasons that you have presented have been tried before. And, and I think that that is, you know, all of the, the side benefits that we get, you know, all of the, there's no question, whatever it is, a 10 to one payout from the money spent on STEM and space exploration into the larger economy is all absolutely relatively easy to, to justify. And yet, with that benefit, that's been very clearly calculated time and time again, it's still a hard sell. So to some, yeah, to some, yeah, and, and so I do think that 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 I think you know you you crack you touched upon this earlier that the private industry getting in there like when SpaceX launches their Starlink system and they put two thousand two hundred satellites up and they overnight offer a a worldwide high speed internet that allows us to all dump our cellular phone providers. Uh, that will pay for an enormous amount of space exploration. So 
And what made that possible was relatively inexpensive, reusable rockets that they can bring down the launch costs. And then when they have all of that money, they'll be able to bring down those launch costs some more. And so it really does feel like, like we've known the benefits, but the various governments of the world haven't really been able to take advantage of it in the way that, that the private industry like hats off to Elon Musk uh, and a lot of the other people involved with SpaceX and, and, and Bezos as well to, to open everyone's eyes to what's possible and what is, what can, what can come. But I think for me, the, the incentive that I think is the best is just the fact that we are sort of ruining our local environment and space is the worst already. So if we can take advantage of space for acquiring our resources, doing our heavy manufacturing, drilling for resources and building them out there, we can let Earth do the thing that it needs to do the most. Like it's the best place in the universe right here. And so let's that we know of No, I, I, I will, I will throw down with any alien who says their planet is better um, for me. <laughs> because okay, I, you know i my and all my previous uh you know life forms evolved specifically into this uh, ecological uh environment so I, we need to let and we're ruining it right we're living in our own waste and we are we're raising the temperatures we are polluting the environment we're filling the oceans with plastic we're doing all this stuff that we really don't need to once we master space then the universe until we find some other life form and we have to negotiate a treaty. But until then, the universe is raw material so that we can make Earth a better place. And I, I love that. That's that's a that's a marvelous That's Bezos. Yeah, that's Jeff Bezos' uh feeling on this. Not you know, Musk is let's colonize Mars and let's let's have a backup plan for humanity. Uh I don't think there's a backup plan for humanity that that Earth will always call to us and we'll always want to come home to this place where you can see oceans and forests and birds and and all of that stuff right that you can live in this mars is like the worst <laughs> you know it's just like this dry cold airless desert where you live underground and and check yourself for cancer all the time and the the concept that you just related this this dream this desire to always come back to earth is such a familiar theme in science fiction yeah, even in, in all sorts of films and books that the individual has gone on a journey or the human race has gone on a tremendous journey of generations. And there's this dream, there's this desire to return back to a, to a pristine earth. And you, you touched on something that makes me want to, to recommend this wonderful book to you and your readers. This is just released very recently. It's Space 2.0, and it's written by Rod Pyle, P-Y-L-E, who's a, a very well-known, very highly admired science spaceflight author i'm sure many of your readers will know that i think this is his 15th book on spaceflight yeah. forward by buzz aldrin and <laughs> yeah. rod is the editor-in-chief of ad astra which is our national space society official magazine so i know rod very well we're friends full disclosure it's a really fantastic book about how we got here yeah. in, in terms of spaceflight how we got to this point and what is happening now and what's likely to happen in the future and He's a very practical, technologically savvy science writer. So this isn't science fiction, this is science fact. And it's so illuminating. And there's a marvelous bit where he talks about what you were just saying, Fraser, which is space is a horrible place. And that for us to do anything as humans, we very weak, fragile humans have to carry a tiny bit of our earth environment with us wherever we go. Yeah. Whether that be a spacesuit or an international space station or a habitat on Mars, which we don't have yet. But it makes you appreciate what we do have when you think that if we go anywhere else at all, we've got to take a, a replica of our environment with us so that we can survive. So it a pale it, imitation a pale imitation yes with no seagulls or yeah. sea breeze or yeah or, although although some of the research i've been doing recently on on projects like the lunar mars greenhouse which is a fascinating hydroponic facility that's going to allow fresh fruit and vegetables to be grown in space does give you hope that 
there would be some form, some comforts, even in the fairly near future on in space settlement. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I am, uh, but I am really excited. I mean, I definitely, I, I got a chance to interview Rod. It was a great conversation. He was wonderful. Um, and I love, I loved his, his book and just that this time it feels so different. This time, here we are with these, with the establishment that has been doing things the way it's always been done and an entirely new way of going about it as well that is going to both use the establishment as its customer base to take the next step and to invigorate or destroy um, the existing way of, of getting to space. But no matter what happens, we're not going we're not going to stop this time around it's going to happen you're you're so right and yeah. i love your enthusiasm and i have the same enthusiasm and i i'm this working with different. the nss every day and i i'm seeing new reports and new numbers and new position papers and it's it's all happening around us yeah it's, it's happening around us as we speak there are there are startup space flight companies new and, and old and established aerospace giants all building and designing new things and we're this is touching on something we spoke about earlier but to me it's the diversity it's being attacked on so many different fronts now it's not just a couple of missions that are being planned and you have heavy launch vehicles being designed you have habitats being designed that are going to be installed on the moon and mars and, and uh, other worlds and then we've got things for leisure space tourism is is a is a real thing as as you know yeah that we're going to be seeing a lot of and in the same way that the the price point of getting raw materials into space has plummeted and i actually got some numbers on this yesterday from our board 10,000 to 25,000 dollars was typical with what we would say heritage yeah launch yeah vehicles maybe in the 60s and 70s and on into the 80s. And the estimate now is $877 per pound. Oh, there you go. Through, through SpaceX. And and it's going to be less than that soon. And then, again, as we touched on earlier, once we start manufacturing things in space through asteroid mining and other resources, then the amount of things that we have to take into space will decrease significantly. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, I'm absolutely with, with you. This There's this feeling of optimism, this, this excitement, uh, along the lines of well what's the new bit of space news today whereas when i was when i was a kid or in in even even when i was a kid during the apollo era it would be well every few months there'd be another bit of news and there's another mission and then in the long gap of the 80s and 90s when when we had less going on and we had skylab and and the shuttle missions and the building of the international space station but all things within within earth orbit and now we're looking far away yeah. again Oh, I guarantee as a person who sort of has to drink from the river every day of space news, and I am overwhelmed by the amount of amazing stuff that's that's happened, and, 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 and I can't wait for what this is all going to become. Uh, so, Jeff, uh, we've reached the end of our time. I want to give you a chance to uh, let people know where they can participate in more. So first, if people want to learn more about the National Space Society and and join up, where can they go? What should they do? Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity, Fraser. So we are nss.org, nationalspacesociety.org. We have an introductory membership rate of only $20, and there are all sorts of uh, attractive packages for students. And our members get this beautiful magazine at Astra, print and digital editions, which is published quarterly, award-winning magazine. And we sponsor the International Space Development Corporation uh, uh, Conference, sorry, International Space Development Conference, ISTC, which happens June 6th through 9 this year in Arlington, Virginia. And all of the information is on our website, nss.org. And we have a very active Twitter and Facebook social media presence. So we're, we're NSS on at NSS on Twitter and National Space Society on Facebook. And I would encourage you to reach out and join us and become a meaningful part of an international organization that is making change, not just today, but, but far into the future. 
And I find it so inspiring that citizens, people who are interested, who are not even in the aerospace or tech world, can feel an active part of this most important of all missions. And if people want to follow what you're up to specifically, personally? Well, thanks, Fraser. I'm Jeff Notkin on everything. That's G-E-O-F-F-N-O-T-K-I-N. And I'm very active on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And my company is Aerolite Meteorites. And we're aerolite.org. That's A-E-R-O-L-I-T-E, which is an archaic British word for meteorites. In case you were wondering. Aerolite is an archaic, really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. So once I got a, I got a intriguing and slightly annoying message from a, from a boy who was seven years old. And he had purchased a, a small piece from us for his birthday. And he wrote to me and he said, I just wanted to let you know that I understand that the word aerolite means meteorite. And so the name of your company is really Meteorite Meteorites. And I think that's redundant. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that kid is way too smart for his own good. And I wrote to his parents and I said, when your boy's 18, you tell him to get in touch with me. He can come work for me. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, everyone, for watching us. Thanks, everyone, who asked a bunch of questions. Thanks to the moderators for keeping it civil. Uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.